Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, commending to your attention sometime today, Tuesday, we will have up on our website our April issue uh, with a dazzling article by the uh, Russian literature professor and general sage Gary Saul Morrison on the Russian view of war and how it explains Russia's conduct in Ukraine. It is one of the most illuminating articles you will ever read, and that will be up later today at commentary.org, along with all of the rest of our of our April issue, including a piece by me on Israel's uh, election mess. Um, Christine and Matt have pieces as well, and there's a lot of other stuff we'll be talking about. And by mentioning Christine and Matt, I have to now introduce our today's panel. We have, of course, with me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Washington Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow Matthew Connetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today from the Foundation for the De- Defense of Democracies, our old friend Jonathan Shanzer, longtime expert on the Middle East, on the relations between Israel and, and, and Arab countries and America's role in the Middle East. Jonathan Shanzer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Good to be with you. Uh, okay, so we wanted Jonathan on so we could have a long conversation about this um, head-shaking news that came out on, I think, Friday morning that no one anticipated that China had brokered a uh, rapprochement or some kind of diplomatic reconciliation between Iran and Saudi Arabia. What this means, what this means about what's going on between the Shia and the Sunni, between the most powerful uh the most probably most militarily powerful country in the middle east iran and the most the richest country in the middle east saudi arabia and what all this portends and why china's in the play why china's involved and what this might mean for the abraham accords but we got news last night that we gotta jump jump on and talk about um uh, ron DeSantis answered a questionnaire sent to all republican candidates by Tucker Carlson, and one of the questions involved uh, the war in Ukraine, and this was DeSantis's answer. While the U.S. has many vital national interests, securing our borders, addressing the crisis of readiness with our military, achieving energy security and independence, and checking the economic, cultural, and military power of the Chinese Communist Party, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. We had hints uh, in the last couple of weeks that DeSantis was trending in this, what you might call NatCon direction, in which he would belittle the importance of uh, the centrality of the fight between uh, Ukraine and Russia uh, as regards the future of Europe, the interests of American foreign policy and the like, in an, uh, particularly in a, in a uh, conversation with uh, another Fox program, uh, the, the Fox Morning Show, 
but it wasn't clear what he was saying and it wasn't clear how he was articulating it. And maybe he was getting himself crosswise of, of the language because he didn't want to offend people, but he has now placed himself very firmly in the camp of a, describing the war in Ukraine as a territorial dispute, as opposed to uh, one country in Europe um, attempting to submerge another country, an independent sovereign state in Europe with a full-scale head-on military invasion. So um, uh, I this is extremely important, and it is very distressing. Uh, I'll explain why it's distressing, or we can try to, you know, I, I don't want to just assert that, since, of course, now what we have here is a debate over whether or not this war is just necessary or whether our involvement in it <laughs> is is important. I just want to point out that I was watching Morning Joe this morning, which I ordinarily don't do, but they did something very interesting, which is they dug up clips of Ron DeSantis in 2015 attacking Barack Obama for failing to arm and train Ukraine in the wake of Russia's uh, 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 takeover of Crimea in 2014, calling Obama weak, call, saying that this was something where the Ukrainians were going to do this for themselves and we owed it to them. And this was a very important place to stand our ground. And Obama was feckless and we needed a Reaganite approach here. That's what he said eight years ago. Uh, we're now, it's now eight years later. And guess what? He has now essentially uh, gone full on in the, um, in the pseudo isolationist direction of opposing America's involvement uh, in the effort to help Ukraine fend off Russia. And doing so, moreover, while trying to sound hawkish by saying, and this is a whole other thing we need to talk about, we're taking our eye off the ball because the only real issue in our foreign policy is China. So, Matt, uh, yeah. <clears throat> how, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm not feeling good, John. <laughs> not feeling good at all this was bad news i mean as you said it seems things seem to be headed in this direction but um uh did not feel well when uh jonathan swan and peter baker reported this story for the new york times yesterday evening i mean to start by um the language of the territorial dispute you know i'm in a territorial dispute with my neighbor you know because his branches are coming across my fence that doesn't mean I send six hypersonic missiles targeting his population centers and uh, leveling a huge uh, war machine that I think the the uh, estimated Russian casualties, Russian casualties are now 120,000, estimated Ukrainian casualties, 100,000. Those are military, so those are soldiers, right? Forget about the civilian uh, costs, the separation of children from their homes in Ukraine and sent uh, forcibly to Russia. Um Territorial dispute is bloodless language and um, uh, and just completely wrong uh, language. That's my first thing. The second thing is I think DeSantis is being far too clever by half. Uh, too clever by half here. He his whole um, appeal, I think, is based on he's the leader. He's the Florida model. He took charge. He's uh, took charge during the pandemic. Uh, he took charge against Disney. He's leading on these issues. His position on Ukraine that he announced last night is him following. He's following. He's following the voters. 
because we see a degradation of the Republican support for the uh, continued assistance to Ukraine. But he's also following the front runner, uh, Donald Trump, which is odd because typically when you want to confront the front runner, you want to distinguish yourself from the front runner. You want to take an issue that kind of will be a wedge issue that will divide his supporters and allow you to portray yourself as a leader. Here, DeSantis is just following Trump. And then that raises the question of uh, Trump, you know, why Trump light when you can have the real thing? And this is, I think, a real problem for DeSantis in the long run, which is if there's nothing to distinguish him from Trump, especially when it comes to global leadership or lack of global leadership on America's part, I don't see why voters wouldn't just say, well, you know, Trump is more entertaining. Uh, he's more interesting. And he may he's actually weirdly better positioned in toward the middle of the country than DeSantis is. If you look at issues like entitlements, issues like um, abortion, even in Ukraine, Trump is kind of, Trump, what's interesting is uh, Trump is saying, we need peace. We need peace in Ukraine. I'm going to have peace. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to start the negotiations, right? That's not what really what DeSantis said. DeSantis in his statement goes, well, we're not going to give them what they need to win. It was kind of a half measure too. He's not even saying we should cut off aid like some of the people in the mega crowd. He's saying, we're not going to give them the long range weapons and we're not going to give them the um, F-16s. Well, you know who... That's also Biden's position for the moment. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, I I mean, I agree with everything Matt said, and I I would add to it that um, not only could you think of him as Trump light here, but um, on this issue, Trump is more honest than DeSantis is. What Trump says about about Ukraine and Russia is wrong, but he means it. You know, that's his that's his opinion. DeSantis doing cosplay here um, comes through. You know, it's why he talked about it in such a garbled way the first time round. Now well, he's that, sort yeah. of settled on an act. Well, that and I and I would posit that it's not just that he's trying to be Trump light. He's also trying to outflank Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson's audience. Re- recall that DeSantis doesn't deal with the mainstream media much. He's reported on by them, but he doesn't sit down for interviews with them. This is a whole tactic he's taken. It, I think it, it worked pretty well when he was a governor. I'm not sure that's going to work long term if he if he declares himself a candidate for president. But Tucker Carlson is his megaphone, like, or is his potential large, largest platform for him to get his message out. And I think we see, you know, all the woke stuff that he and, and the way he's incorporated just the word woke into a lot of his domestic policy discussions shows that it, it that's a huge hit with the with the Tucker crowd. This seems to me to be another way to reach that audience too. And it's but it's striking to me because it, John mentioned earlier, you know, he he was he was actually criticizing Obama. That was in 2015. That was not that long ago. So the inconsistency there strikes me as as shocking in part because you do see candidates in primaries run far to the fringe and then tack back. And you can do that for a lot of issues. Strikes me as impossible to do that if he's coming out of the gate with this message on Ukraine and Russia. There's no way to tack back. Uh, there's a poll uh, CNN released this morning about the attitudes and ideas of Republican and primary voters and the independents who lean Republican, which is very interesting. And we'll probably talk about it over the course of the week. The striking number to me was that uh, among Republicans who talk about what issues matter the most to them uh, in deciding who they're going to vote for in 2024 and what matters in 2024, 
foreign policy came in at 9%, which means that Republican voters, <clears throat> it's in, in terms of the centrality of this issue, Ukraine and foreign policy in general, Republican voters are not focused on this at all. And therefore, uh, if you are a politician with your uh, finger on the pulse of the Republican Party as a whole and want to win nationally in the Republican Party as a whole, um, I'm not sure that you need to do something extremely provocative in your expressions of opinion about Ukraine. It's kind of a gimme because only 10% care and you don't know how they care. Half of them could care a lot about Ukraine winning and half of them could say we should not be there at all. Therefore, it's a free kick. And DeSantis, and this is my fear about DeSantis, aside from the dishonesty that Abe mentions, which is bad, and 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 I think this uh, opinion about Ukraine, which I think is bad, it is this question of whether or not there is a part of DeSantis that has been captured by the Twitter right, and that he is responding to people the NatCons and others who do not have followings, who do not represent the mainstream of the Republican Party, not that anything necessarily represents the mainstream of the Republican Party on foreign policy, because foreign policy doesn't matter to the Republican Party at this present moment. And therefore, the Republican Party can be led, just as Matt said, if DeSantis is a leader, one of the ways you can lead is to lead by saying what he did, the opposite of what he said, which is, Biden is a wimp because he is not doing what is necessary to allow Ukraine to win this war, uh, which only requires us in support by training his people to use F-16s and using them and therefore establishing, uh, quieting Russia uh, from the air or, you know, taking the fight to them or however you want to put it. The data suggests that that is a live and living option for a candidate and he deliberately chose not to take it because he wants to be Trump light. Why does he want to be Trump light? What are the voices in his ear that are telling him to violate what are long-term views that he held? This is not good for him to have his own words thrown in his face because it makes him look inconstant, unserious, and maybe disingenuous. And that's what he chose to do. And the way I look at it, is we saw in 2020 that the candidate who ignored Twitter, ignored the ideologues on Twitter in his own party and ran the race that he had to run, won the Democratic primary. And the candidates who were literally responsive minute by minute to Twitter's fancies, obsessions and predilections all fell by the wayside with astonishing rapidity. And that does not appear to be the lesson that DeSantis has taken. Jonathan Chanzer, do you have any thoughts on many I of do. these matters? I do. Um, look, I, I would say that, um, you know, the 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 issue of isolationism or neo-isolationism is, is, is what I think we need to focus on here right now. We're watching a, a sort of a horseshoe effect within American politics, right? Uh, far left, far right, coming together in uh in support of of neo-isolationist policies getting america out of foreign entanglements this seems to be one of the areas where there is some agreement and you know i think probably um the uh quincy institute uh, among others is is a great example of this right this is money that's coming from uh coke and soros 
uh, right? The arguments that we're seeing do seem to be gaining traction. I would possibly uh, posit here that this is less about Twitter and um, trying to follow the the herd um, and respond in real time to, you know, uh, whatever sentiments are being expressed on social media. And I would start to look at, uh, you know, election money. Uh, You've got, you know, very powerful people that are uh, pushing for this neo-isolationist approach to America's role in the world. And just to be clear about what's at stake here in Russia uh, and Ukraine, right? The Russians are challenging the American-led world order. This is not just simply a, a territorial dispute, right? They are, uh, they've launched a war on the edge of Europe. Uh, they're challenging NATO. They're challenging the rules-based order that America has tried to enforce, and perhaps we're enforcing it um, in, in not, maybe not in the best way over the last let's say, decade or so. Uh, But that is their intention. And uh, when I look at what's happening in Ukraine right now, I see opportunities for the United States um, to take shots at a revisionist power without doing so directly, right? This is America's opportunity here. Countries have been doing it to us now in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last several decades. Here we have an opportunity to weaken Putin's military and to do so indirectly, it's working. It actually is working. It is a success story. This may be a long game for us, but there are significant opportunities if we can just simply hold on to it. The concern really that I have right now is just the will of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party for that matter in general, right? Who is leading the charge uh, in terms of advocating for what we once had and what we still can have if we decide to dedicate at least some of our resources uh, to conflict with revisionist powers. Okay, well, let's move on to that question, because as I said, DeSantis, in that statement that I read from from the Tucker questionnaire, um, DeSantis says we need to, we need to, our foreign policy interests are uh, immigration, energy, and uh, fighting back the uh, on the 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 um, uh, Chinese uh, efforts to you know to take primacy in the world. Um, this is interesting because immigration is in fact not a foreign policy concern. I believe uh, it would be a mistake to call it a foreign policy concern from the perspective of immigration hawks. It is in fact a. Uh, a crime and punishment concern. It's a domestic, it's a question of what the domestic enforcement is of our own laws inside the United States. Uh, In fact, it is a leftist thing to say that immigration is a foreign policy concern because that means you need to do things outside to encourage people to stay home. You need to give them economic, you need to give them aid, you need to pay them off, you need to sort of teach them how to, you know, have rule of law and things like that in order to make life in their home countries uh, much more palatable so they won't come here. The conservative concern is that American laws are being violated and broken, and we are sort of like standing there and letting it happen. So it's interesting that he puts that in the foreign policy camp, and he only does it, I think, because it sounds good uh, to uh, immigration hawks. And in fact, in that CNN poll I mentioned, immigration, I think, is the number one issue at like 33% or something like that among Republicans. Um, 
so there's the immigration thing. Then there's uh, energy, which is a foreign policy concern, although a lot of that is very domestic in, in, in nature and function and doesn't speak to America's place in the world in the same way. And then there is this, uh, no, 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 no. What we need to be hawkish on is China. We need to be hawkish on is China. And there's a whole body of opinion led by uh, Elbridge Colby and all of that who are saying, like, if we're doing anything in Ukraine, it's distracting us from the real thing, which is China. And we need to go at China and focus at China. And we've been making the argument here for at least a year that uh, Ukraine is about China, <laughs> that uh, we have decided that we are uh, we, we, we are standing with uh, this uh, uh, effort to maintain sovereignty in Ukraine and beat back uh, the Russians as a message to China that we will take measures if they invade Taiwan and that we are showing our constancy, our seriousness of purpose, and that we're not just going to stand by and let this idly happen and that there are huge opportunity costs to China if they decide to make this move that they are so tempted to make. And uh, it's very interesting that that the NatCons have gone with the China hawk thing because they still know that Republicans believe in hawk there's something about toughness international resolve show facing down bad guys that is unique that is part of the conservative republican dna they don't want to do it so they're now pointing over here to this other place and saying no no the thing that we're doing now we shouldn't be doing we need to prepare for the fight we're going to have later with this other country that by the time that fight happens if we pull out of this one they're all going to be saying, no, no, we really need to come to the bargaining. We, we should also point out Xi is going to talk to Putin next week. And then after that is is sending signals that he might then also talk to Zelensky. He is positioning himself and China as the broker of, of this conflict in a way that that used to be our role. That should be our role. It's very bad. You spoke of a vacuum. He's trying to fill a vacuum, too. And right now, unfortunately, the Biden administration is not not seeing it that way. But I it, but honestly, this was the position for old fashioned good foreign policy conservatives would be to be loudly stamping their feet and going, that is our job. That is our job. We are the world's leader. Right now, we're not. I want to focus on one uh, statement in the DeSantis uh, uh, release to Tucker Carlson. He says, quote, the Biden administration's policies have driven Russia into a de facto alliance with China. Well, no. <laughs> it's not the it's not America's fault that Russia is a, in a de facto alliance with China. These are two authoritarian regimes. I think they inked the Shanghai Protocol back in the, the 90s or something. They've been they've been trying to find areas of cooperation for decades. They have a uh, like-minded interest in suppressing their populations and maintaining one-party control and they're both revisionist powers. The world order as it is currently constituted does not help them, does not service their interests uh, in maintaining and extending their power. And so they have a natural alliance. And this that language just is a reeks of blame America first to me. I mean, I get the partisan dimension. You want to blame Biden, but that's not again. And I, you know, I have to do it. I have to compare it to what Trump said. Trump's statement to Tucker Carlson is it's all Biden's fault. The war wouldn't have happened if I was in charge. And and again, with Trump, you know, he's very consistent on this, at least. Europe isn't doing enough. 
Europe needs to spend the money equal to what we're spending. But then he says, tell Ukraine that there will be little more money coming from us. And then he goes all caps, unless Russia continues to prosecute the war. <laughs> right. So he, oh, that, which means there will be more money coming from us. And then he says the president must meet with each side, then both sides together and quickly work out a deal. Right. And he's saying he'll be able to do that. But if Putin doesn't do it, then we're going to have to keep supporting Ukraine. That's a different policy than what DeSantis is outlining. And I think it speaks to this divergence between Trump and MAGA world. <laughs> and there's always this, this kind of category era, error that happens that you start, MAGA starts imputing its own policies onto their leader that he doesn't even really share. And if you would see, to just what Christina's saying, you would see Trump trying to do exactly what she is doing. And it probably wouldn't work because at the end of the day, Putin is only going to be stopped on the battlefield. But I think it it's more of the, it's the weird kind of Trumpian version of international leadership, which is different than kind of the, the neo-isolationist pose that DeSantis is striking. And it, that is probably more politically effective, I'm speaking about Trump here, than DeSantis. Abe, I want to go back to the, a point I made a couple of minutes ago, which is that um, which is that uh, the Republican Party's views, at least as registered in this poll and other polls, are really is really not fixed. Um, in polling about Ukraine, Republican support has been eroding over the course of the last year. But so, by the way, has Democratic support, though not as fast as Republican support. Republican support is still substantial. It's in the 40s. It was around 60. It's now in the 40s. Um, and that means that uh, since it's not fixed, it can go any way. It can go either way. And what does this tell you? DeSantis is aligning himself with a view that says that America's involvement in Ukraine is a version of what George Washington called the entangling alliances that we were supposed to avoid as this, you know, fresh new country on the other side of the ocean. When um, uh, I don't know, I, I'm not entirely sure to whom, in a mass sense, he is appealing. Well, I'm I'm not so sure that Republican opinion on this issue at this point can go any way. I kind of think it only goes one way, uh, you know, in the in the in the short and, and near term future, which is the I think the support continues to erode. It doesn't have the bottom doesn't have to fall out at once, which is, I think, um, something that DeSantis is hastening here. Um, uh, and I I think Matt's point um, is excellent about the sort of separation between Trump and MAGA world uh, on this. Uh, as someone who uh, is, you know, sort of uh, spies the the crazy online Twitter world that John's talking about, um, it seems to me that uh, a lot of the, the, the people who um, support DeSantis and support DeSantis on this and who uh, may or may not be whispering in, in his ear on this, hate Trump. Uh, they they simultaneously called Trump a clown, 
while supporting this. Um, like which Tucker, is, which is right. By yeah. the way, right. Wh- which who is said even, in those Dominion emails that Trump's a destroyer and I hate him and he's a monster. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. No, it's so it's worse because then this is obviously this is a a sort of pan new right belief, you know, uh, you, you, you across the new right. Um, word is out that 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 we'd want to be involved in these things. And by the way, when it comes to this argument about, well, we're taking our eye off the ball and the real fight is in China. Um, were the China fight ever to go kinetic in any way, uh, whether a proxy war or God help us, a, a, a actual direct conflict, these same people would not be would not be saying we should okay now now get into an actual uh, fight with China. It's always easy to say. The real we're we're taking our eye off the ball because the the actual ball doesn't involve uh, any fighting at the moment. Also, you're talking about a more difficult fight for us. That's right. the other part about this, which is like an, another version of if you want really want to go back, <clears throat> Matt's uh, book, The Right, uh, goes into some of this. Um, you really want to go back to the 40s and 50s. Uh, there was a big fight on the right over our attitude and uh, and posture toward the Soviet Union which was to say the idea that containment, the policy that emerged from the Truman administration, was the right said weak. It was weak. It wasn't tough enough. What we needed to do was roll back communism, um, you know, and and then who lost China and all of that. The reason that this was convenient and also foolhardy was that the policy that they were advocating was a policy of actual perpetual face-to-face warfare with another nuclear power. Like, if we are going to roll back communism, that meant we were going to be in direct conflict with the Soviet Union, maybe even on the battlefield. So, And that was never going to happen. So by advocating tougher-sounding policies, you were actually, in practice, being an isolationist because the policies that you were advocating were utopian and irresponsible and impossible to follow. Similarly, if China moves on Taiwan, we're in very, very deep trouble because we have very few options to prevent them from doing what they're doing. But here, Russia against Ukraine, we got plenty of options. And we've seen vastly more success than anybody expected by this point. And we know what needs to happen for that success to be built upon. And there is resistance in Biden's heart and soul and mind and in the Biden administration to doing the things necessary to continuing Ukraine's success in challenging Russia's effort to take it over. And the Republic, the natural effect, the natural political effect should be that the Republican Party should be saying they're saying, you're a wimp. Stop being a wimp. Help them win. Help them win. Help them win. But there is this siren song, this old isolationist siren song, which is, this isn't our fight. Nothing's our fight. Nothing. We're not involved. And what's more, this weird love, this weird enthusiasm, positive feeling toward Putin. Tucker has it. Trump has it a bit. You know, a lot of MAGA people have it. They like him. He hates, you know, he's 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 opposed to gay rights and he's but believes in the traditional family. I don't know, whatever the hell it is that they wanna that they wanna say that is 
patent that makes them feel positively toward Putin. And then they don't like Zelensky. Why? I don't really know why. They don't like Zelensky because he didn't he didn't give Trump what he wanted on the phone call and go after Hunter. I don't know what it is. Jonathan. Yeah, look, I, I would say that we can see some of what it is, and and that is disdain for uh, what is traditional foreign policy, right? We see uh, folks on the right and 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 on the left that um, express disdain for what they call the uniparty, right? These are blue dog Democrats and Republicans that support a robust uh, foreign policy, and and really, when we think about what's missing right now, at least from my perspective, right. We talk about, you know, maybe doing what's just and supporting an embattled Ukrainian people. But I think what's missing right now that is, um, you know, I I think if some leader, Republican or Democrat, can put their finger on it, I think it might begin to solve some of this problem, which is what is it that we are fighting for ideologically? I mean, there is no discussion right now. I mean, back at the beginning of the Cold War, right, we were talking about uh, a battle between our system, right, of democracy and free markets versus communism. What are we battling right now? There is no real articulation of this. There's nothing that is pulling the American people together. So what we hear instead is just disdain uh, for what was and an idea of revisionism uh, within our political system without really articulating a forward-looking vision. And I think this is really what's missing among all of the leadership right now, all the candidates, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's Trump. I'm not even sure Nikki Haley has expressed it yet. I think she's probably the closest to putting her finger on it, that kind of Reagan Republicanism. Uh, but I think that is largely missing from the discussion. I think we get our, we, we, if we can establish that, Perhaps we can move forward uh, on Ukraine in a more unified matter. Matt or Christine, let me let me ask you this. So um, something occurred to me last night, which is that among the people whom DeSantis is attempting to appeal to uh, in the sort of intellectual new right or whatever you want to call it, the NatCon, SoCon right, um, there's a lot of talk and there's been a lot of talk. It sort of started, oddly enough, kind of with Ross Douthat many, many years ago. But there's this talk that... Republicans are obsessed with what the, with zombie Reaganism. Reaganism. Reagan was elected forty three years ago, and he was out of office uh, thirty. What is it? Thirty five years ago, and uh, and uh, people keep talking about wanting to return to the time of Reagan, and that is just we're two generations removed from that. And what what this is is they're supporters of a zombie Reaganism, and we have long taken that to mean when they say zombie Reaganism. You know, this kind of sclerotic tax cuts, you know, and so all Republicans want to do is talk about tax cuts and tax cuts are now increasingly uh, there isn't much you can do to make to, to change the balance of things on tax cuts because the marginal rates have been cut so conclusively and held pretty much in place for a long time. And so we've always looked at that like domestically, like that Reagan was answering a question of a certain moment. And that was that. And so they they keep talking about this and it's zombie Reaganism. But I realized last night reading this DeSantis statement that in fact, when they hint or, you know, smear or, you know, do whatever it is. And when they talk about zombie Reaganism, that it's not about domestic policy at all. That it is in fact about foreign policy that, the NatCons and the SoCons and the people who who condemn zombie Reaganism and the Republican Party's ad- addiction to Reagan, what they don't like is that he was a an American 
patriot who believed not only in the uh, validity, viability, and necessity of the American experiment and and expanding it outward from America to the world, uh, but also that America was a force for good in the world by definition. And what they hate about Reaganism is that because they don't like America anymore. They do not like America. But this speaks to what Jonathan was just saying. I think this is a very important point because what they it's actually both domestic and foreign policy. And when they talk about zombie zombie Reaganism, what they are what they are pushing back against is a positive vision for America in the world and a positive message for Americans at home to be proud to be American. And I think that's absolutely I think it's terrible that we've come to a point where both parties have a pretty significant number of people who who have a kind of negative a kind of anti-vision, not anti-American necessarily, but a kind of very, very negative approach to what this country is capable of, what its people should should want and do. But it's both. I really think it's both. And this was actually the the hope for DeSantis was that he was someone who could kind of battle the left on its crazy fringe while while revivifying that vision, like sort of saying, look, you know, remember that this country is good. Remember what we can do. Look at what we've done in Florida. Let's let's spread that message. That was sort of how he came out of the gate. But on this foreign policy thing, he is it, it, I, I, I'm back to what Matt said at the beginning. Like, it's so disappointing. It's just bad. But I do think zombie Reaganism should be should be uh, seen for what it is, which is a kind of negative, backward looking, angry sort of wallowing that is not going to help the Republican Party move forward. OK, I got to take a break here for a second and talk to you about our advertiser today, uh, Bambi. And unfortunately, I've lost the ad. OK, here it is. Look, when running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting and difficult uh, situations. Like, what what do you have to do when remote workers move locations? Uh, what do you do about employee attendance and coming into work? What do you do if an employee has poor hygiene and is working next to people who are finding that very difficult to live with? Um, you better talk. To Bambi. What is Bambi? It provides you with a dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 a month, available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. An HR manager can cost you eighty grand a year. Bambi starts at $99 per month. So schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E.com, Bambi.com, type in Commentary Magazine. Jonathan Shanzer, Friday, suddenly uh, <clears throat> Iran and Saudi Arabia announced that in two months they are going to exchange ambassadors these are two countries that have been essentially fighting a proxy war uh, in the uh, neighboring in the Saudi neighboring country of Yemen and uh, uh Iranians sunk you know attacked have terror have attacked uh, Saudi Arabia through terrorism Saudi Arabia has been implicitly supporting Israeli efforts to impede the uh, uh Iranian nuclear program these are countries at daggers drawn at war uh, of, for the future of Islam, for the future of the 21st century in the Middle East. And suddenly China is brokering some kind of a rapprochement between them. 
this is your bailiwick. Help us understand what you think is going on here. Yeah. So look, first of all, um, I wrote a piece for commentary uh, not too long ago, uh, describing what I, I call diplomatic arson in the Middle East. Uh, and this was the uh, I, really wrongheaded policy of the Biden administration to alienate the Saudis. The Saudis are still a very important player uh, in the region, obviously oil producers, but also kind of a fulcrum for politics in the Gulf and perhaps the broader uh, Muslim world. And the Biden administration is openly antagonizing the Saudis. Now, of course, it, Biden's been egged on by the likes of the squad and other um, uh, progressives in, in Congress. Uh, but Biden fell for it. And I think um, he's just fallen on his face here, right? And so the impact of uh, of this coup for uh, the Chinese, I think, is is unmistakable. One, the Chinese have leapfrogged us in terms of diplomacy in the region, right? Here they are. I mean, took everybody by surprise. I cannot name one serious analyst right now that follows the Middle East that was prepared for this moment. Everybody was shocked by the fact that the Chinese were able to do this. Um, and and really, I think it the Chinese are starting to. I'm not sure they've accomplished it yet, but they're starting to demonstrate that they're no longer just a transactional power, that they are thinking about long-term stability and diplomacy and, you know, perhaps ways to um, bring stability to the international system in a way that benefits them. Uh, so I think that was sort of the number one loss. And you can see that the White House is smarting from this. They definitely feel as if uh, they lost an opportunity here. That's number one. Number two, I think um, the deal itself um, legitimized Iran at a moment where it really, it shouldn't have happened, right? I mean, here they are, they've just reached 84% enrichment um, of uh, of uranium, right? They're knocking on that nuclear doorstep and then they're brought out, they're trotted out onto the world stage for this major announcement. This is legitimizing uh, at Iran, uh, Iran at the exact wrong time. And then there's the Saudi and Israeli elements. The Saudi element is, of course, that they are, 100% hedging on the United States for the reasons that we've already discussed. That is 100% clear. Um, and then there's the broader question now of, of whether this means that the Saudis are moving more towards Iran and more towards that kind of rejectionist front and perhaps away from normalization with Israel, which is something that a number of us have uh, have been watching. And we've been very hopeful about that the Saudis have expressed an openness for this. The last thing that I'll just say here is that um, even though I think this was bad news on, on many fronts, um, I think some of the reactions have been perhaps predictably overblown. Um, I don't believe that this deal has longevity. Um, I don't believe that it portends a serious shift in the way that uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran look at one another. They still truly dislike each other on uh, in, in for many, many reasons. Certainly the sectarian issue is, is one of them, but they, I mean, they've got decades now of, of hate that has built up. I don't believe that this deal is going to change any of that. In fact, I would say that it's quite likely that the deal falls apart after some time, maybe things heat up again in Yemen, which I do believe is driving most of this right now. This could be kind of an interim deal to finally bring that Yemen uh, war to a close. Uh, but in the in, in the meantime, I would just say that this deal, because of all the other hatreds that have built up, 
may not last very long, as I was um, opining last night on Twitter, this deal sort of feels like it was made in China, and most things in China don't last that long. Um, so, uh, in fact, the, uh, what we know about the deal is relatively modest. I mean, first of all, it's not like they announced, we are now exchanging ambassadors. You know, uh, the, this guy is going to go to Riyadh, this guy is going to go to Tehran, and we're doing it, you know, right now. Uh, you know, and uh, wish us luck. Like it's going to happen in two months. To, a lot can, a lot, a lot of stuff can happen in two months. And there's a a lot of vaporware in Middle Eastern diplomatic agreements um, where uh, they make a grand florid announcements and then nothing, nothing actually, actually happens. So that's one thing to point out. But let's talk about the Biden administration and the arson that you talk about and where where this leads us uh, right now. Um, So we have a policy toward this extremely important country, uh, much of which seems to be governed in the minds of a lot of people with power in in, uh, political quarters inside the Biden administration and elsewhere, uh, relating to the admittedly horrifying murder of one single person five years ago one person terrible a terrible event the uh you know the the murder of jamal uh, khashoggi and and the gruesome way in which it was carried out and uh, attempted to be hidden and all of that as much as I believe that human rights should be at the forefront of American foreign policy, the behavior of a country toward a single critic cannot and should not be governing America's national response to this massive geopolitical question of what's going to go on between the world's most destabilizing country now, Iran, and this country, rich country that is at a hinge moment about where it is going to go in the future and who it is going to align with. Is it still the case? Am I right to think that the murder of, of Jamal Khashoggi is still sort of the hovering sort of, you know, is is this hovering shadow that is, you know, in it's like in the mindset of the Biden people and they can't move away from. I, I think Yes. Uh, but I, I would add a few other things. Uh, you know, you've got a, a gaggle of human rights uh, organizations that are just looking at some of the draconian laws, which, by the way, are being reformed slowly but surely inside the kingdom. Uh, but the kingdom is still being pilloried for them. Um, I, I think that that's that that's one. Um, two, I believe that there are a number of people within the Democratic Party in particular that continue to look at the region um, as a binary right? That either we support the Iranians, right? And we invest in that relationship, or we invest in the kind of traditional Gulf relationships that have served us for decades. Um, And, you know, you've got Democrats right now, in particular progressives that really are still thinking about Iran as the way out of our mess in the Middle East, and that Saudi represents the problem. Uh, you could also add, by the way, that the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, right, their um, their recent engagement, recent being the last couple of years, the recent engagement with Israel 
is not sitting well with progressives. And so what you have is, I would say, an incoherent policy from the Biden administration and certainly from those further left of this White House. Uh, they look like all they want to do is draw blood. They want that pound of flesh from the Saudis. And it is a self-destructive policy, right? The Saudis are still crucial oil producers. They are still a fulcrum for what happens in the region. And we've just let a massive opportunity uh, slip by. I think I that if I can just interject, I, I think that the murder of Khashoggi um, was a convenient rationale for the larger question of uh, establishing some type of equilibrium in the Gulf between Saudi and Arabia and uh, Iran in the absence of American power. So if you go back, Jonathan, am I right in thinking that, you know, when the Obama administration was in power, uh, it viewed the Iran nuclear deal as a way to kind of uh, kind of balance the scales between Saudi and Iran so that America could get out. And then Khashoggi happens during Trump. And it's once again, oh, it's just, oh, look how bad the Saudis are. So this is a reason for us to pursue the Iran deal when we get it back in power which the administration has done. And I think what the, even though uh, they've been unsuccessful, what's most damning to me is that even though they've been terribly unsuccessful and they've said, uh, well, we're not, the deal is kind of uh, dead in the water. Then they add at the moment. <laughs> so yeah. there's still a hope that they can continue with this policy of establishing equilibriums and balance of power. And I have a real problem with equilibriums and balance of power because they never work. They never work right. and they're going to fall apart. I, look, 100 percent. And you, you may recall that there was that statement that Obama made about how these two regional powers need to share the region, uh, which is just an insane concept. Right. These these two countries are not sharing anything. And again, I think this deal won't last because of that. It's been a zero sum game between them uh, for so many years. But maybe one other thing I'll just note, by the way, that's driving this from the left is the fact that Trump was very friendly with Saudi Arabia, right? This is, it's, it is just local politics at this point that if Trump likes Saudi Arabia, then we cannot, right? And that is an, another huge part of what's happening here. Um, and again, it's, it's just simply wrong given how important Saudi Arabia can be. Maybe one other thing I'll just note here is, you know, there was a time where I think I would agree with the approach that Democrats were taking with regard to Saudi Arabia. It was really worst in breed in the region. It was supporting terrorism. It really was this backward country. I've been to Saudi Arabia a number of times over the last five years, and I can say that the changes that are happening right now are nothing short of astounding. Now, I'm not saying that it's turned into a democracy overnight. I don't think it will ever be. But the changes that are happening for women, the reforms that are happening on the ground um, it's it, you cannot ignore them when you're there. And so the Saudis are actually taking these steps. They're not doing it to please anyone other than themselves. This is the vision of MBS. And yet this is the response that we're getting from Democrats. The moment right now should be, hey, you're doing good stuff. Let us support you. We didn't like what you did with Khashoggi, but wow, we're watching these reforms. And by the way, you hear it from dip American diplomats on the ground that they are impressed with this. It's just not trickling up to the White House. Right. I mean, look, the fact that uh, I said what I said, you know, five minutes ago about how the Saudis, it's one thing and you have to work like <laughs> the fact that that is rhetoric or talk that I'm using in relation to them 
sort of what you it, it is astonishing to me. Um, I think I've told this story before, but I wrote my bachelor's thesis at the University of Chicago in 1982 under the under the supervision of Daniel Pipes on the relationship between America and Saudi Arabia and how craven it had become in the wake of the oil embargoes of 70 you know basically the big oil embargo of 73 in particular and and how we had moved to this position of appeasement rather than challenge and uh, that was my view, and it was, in fact, the world's largest sponsor of terrorism, the 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 paymasters of the of the PLO, and uh, supporting all. And then things started to shift in the late first decade of the two thousands, and then began to shift radically as Mohammed bin Salman, who is still very young, I think he's 35, 36. Little, yeah. Okay, yeah. um, you know, as he as he consolidated power, and he had a vision of the future that broke the sclerotic logjam of the Wahhabi influenced monarchy, and wanted to modernize his country. And he is a Saudi; he is not an American. He is not a, you know, he he is, uh, you know, when Ataturk did this in Turkey, he wasn't doing it from the perspective of a of a liberal Democrat when he secularized and modernized Turkey, but you can't pick your reformist. You can't, you can't, you know, the reformist isn't going to look like what we want a reformist to look like. And the proof of the pudding was in the eating, which is to say that he changed the diplomatic. He broke through a sclerotic log in the middle East in relation to Israel. And indeed in relation to uh, the States around him, that were also trapped in this never-ending cycle of no change in relation to modernity. And and uh, and so it astonishes me that I'm supportive of this. But what astonishes me even more is the inability of at least one party in the American political system to take a win, to take, to seize the reins of the future in relation to this. Because the facts on the ground changed, and your your position in relation to those facts on the ground is supposed to change. That's what they want from Iran. What they wanted from Iran hasn't happened in Iran. Then it happened in Saudi Arabia. Abe, you, uh, yeah, I, Jonathan could speak to something that's that's worrying me. Um, obviously, uh, this 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 deal is concerning regarding. Saudi's Saudi Arabia's posture towards Israel. There's also, uh, in addition with this news, we heard that uh, Riyadh blocked uh, um, an Israeli delegation to a UN uh, 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 conference in Saudi Arabia recently. Um, a Muslim Israeli uh, delegation to 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 Saudi Arabia. So certainly, those of us who were hoping that um, Saudi Arabia was going to at some point sort of get on the um, Abraham Accords train. Um, this is this is concerning. I have the further concern. If you could talk a little bit about Saudi Emirates relations and what possibility th there might be for unwinding what has already happened in terms of the Abraham Accords, if any. Hmm. Um, bo both interesting points, I think, to raise. Um Look, on the day that this was announced, uh, we also saw a report that came out, I think it was in the New York Times, uh, which were this, it, it included the Saudi demands 
for normalization. So they've not taken normalization with with with, um, with Israel. With yes, with Israel. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, so the the Saudis come out and say that they want to uh, have some nuclear progress. Uh, they want uh, you know weapon sales from the United States. Right. They've actually listed some rather transactional demands from the United States on the day that this is announced with China. So what I think they're doing is really, I mean, they are literally hedging, right? You can watch them. They're playing both sides of this great power competition and they're letting the United States know that they can go in a different direction should they choose. But hey, if United States, if you want to back us, you want to give us the things that we're asking for right now, we are uh, considering a deal with Israel and, you know, Joe Biden, your Nobel prize awaits you. And, you know, I think the response from the United States has been crickets on this. Instead, it's been howling about how the United States was leapfrogged in terms of diplomacy. We saw some kind of strange statements coming out of the state department where they said, well, okay, well, this portends stability in the region, this deal with Iran. And so therefore we support it, but yet all the grumbling about how, you know, China has just eaten our lunch. So that that's on the one side. And I think, look, the, the normalization agreement with Israel is still on the table. The, the Saudis are still interested. The question is whether the United States is willing to take steps in that direction. And I think because of the politics that we've already discussed and the, the, the general inclination of the Democratic Party right now, I think it's unlikely. And so politics are getting in the way of what could be a real diplomatic victory. Now, as for the inter-Gulf relations, it's interesting. We've been hearing now for the last several months that tensions have emerged between the Emirates and uh, and Saudi Arabia. I don't know if that means that the Saudis are going to go in a different direction. What I think it means right now is that the Emirates have really emerged as best in class within the Gulf states, right? They are killing it in terms of business, in terms of reform, in terms of engagement, in terms of diplomacy, investment, right? We're watching them really, I think, surge um, among the Gulf states. The Saudis are, I think, realizing that they're losing a step here and they're looking for ways to get back into the game. I believe that normalization with Israel could help them um, and, and allow them to, um, to, to leapfrog the, the Emirates in some respects. Uh, but they are very much peers. I think the, um, the competition is actually healthy, right? I mean, we compete with a number of allies. It's not you know, it's not angry competition, it's healthy competition. And the hope is, is that's where we ultimately see the Gulf go as well. Jonathan Shanzer, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter or uh, at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy site. His piece on uh, uh, our uh, diplomatic arson in the Middle East, I think we'll try to repost today on the website so that you can all get a get a read of it i guess it came out in the middle of 2021 so it's a little it's that but it obviously still extremely fresh and as i say we're going to have our 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 april issue up uh later today for your reading enjoyment so for uh abe christine and madam john pod keep the candle burning